Hello and welcome to the Tez Magazine Debrief Podcast. I'm Dan Worth, your host for this week's episode, as both John and Gronia are away. So I'm delighted to be joined instead by Helen Amas, the Deputy Commissioning Editor of Tez. Hello. Hello, Dan. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Excited to be uh, excited to be here, stepping in. Good stuff. And we're also joined by Melissa Hartim-Smith, who is the Deputy Head of Content Creation and Digital Development. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's my first time on the Magazine Debrief podcast, obviously, as well. Um, in fact, it's my first test podcast, so um, yeah, really happy to be here. Great, exciting stuff. So this episode, we are talking about the 30th of October issue. And the first feature we're going to look at today is the cover feature, which is about direct instruction. It's a piece written by John Morgan. Although to say it's about direct instruction probably sells it short, because it's a really fascinating sort of historical look over a major research project that started in the US in the 60s called Project Follow Through. It was all about different ways of different types of teaching that, that can be delivered and what works best. And the, the results sort of found that direct instruction was the best, but actually over time, people started to pick apart the research and found issue with it. And it sort of led to this standoff between those who use it to back up their belief in direct instruction and those who sort of see it as, you know, it doesn't have the, the clout to warrant such a claim. Um, Helen, also you have been in the classroom in the past. What do you make mm-hmm. of that direct instruction? Is that something you're a sort of big believer in or do you think it sort of has its limitations too? I think, um, I mean, John's done a really, really great job on this feature. He's really kind of done his homework and dug deep into um, what this research project um, was actually about and then sort of tracked uh, the kind of effects of it and and um, and how we're still seeing those effects in the classroom today. Um, and I think it's, it's really important to point out that there's um, two sort of different types of direct instruction. There's direct instruction, which kind of traditionalists, tr- uh, sort of trad teachers would, um, you know, uh, uh, be in, in favour of which is is very kind of teacher led uh, instruction. That's the kind of direct instruction that you would hear about most commonly in schools. But specifically, this re uh, the research project, the project follow through, looked at um, direct instruction with capital D, capital I, um, and that is a, a much more kind of um, holistic method of teaching, which is. Uh, got very specific kind of teaching practices. Um, it involves um, specific curricular materials and monitoring and training systems. So it's something that's a bit more um, focused and a bit of a kind of a bigger fish than um, the direct instruction that the teachers um, would be more familiar with. Um, and so I think it's important to make that that distinction to start with. Um, and I think that's one of the the problems with using the evidence to support direct instruction, uh, small lowercase direct instruction, because it's it's something slightly different. So the evidence doesn't quite support it in the way that some people might think. Yeah, I mean the piece does a really good job of sort of pulling out that sort of all those nuances of this, and, and again like showing mm. that you can sort of bend research in certain ways to fit certain narratives. I mean, mm. Melissa, I don't know about you, but when I read this, you know, it's so fascinating to see how something, you know, one one area of classroom teaching and how it can be delivered can lead to so much, you know, um, sort of differences of opinion and, and political wrangling, and you know. I know I mean so many twists and turns it was kind of intricately plotted like Mm. a John le Carre novel or something and all the conspiracy theories I mean the fact that the final results of the study were never actually published um you know you can't help but think well that that seems a bit dodgy doesn't it especially when the US federal government is is behind that decision um that said it's not exactly QAnon but um (laughs) uh but yeah I I you know I like Helen said it was really fascinating the distinction between 
you know, lowercase direct instruction as it's referred to, um, which, which I knew about, but it really filled this gap in my knowledge because I didn't know that DI uh, was this, this thing and that there was this very specific method and that there had been this huge costly study that was kind of controversial. I just knew it was a style of teaching. So it was really interesting learning about all of that. Yeah, I mean, mm. one of the things that really stood out for me was the cost of this study. It ran for mm. eight years and it cost 500 million in 1970 prices, which John sort of equates to 3.3 billion US dollars or 2.6 billion UK you know, pounds, which is quite incredible, really, to have that cost and that you know, type of study. I mean, do you think that will ever happen again, Helen? Do you think we'll ever see such major studies in areas of teaching or is that just a different era? No, I, I think that it's, it's quite possible that that could happen again. I think there's definitely, you know, there's a huge focus on um, research-led pedagogy these days. Um, and uh, I think that there's sort of, you know, two sides to it. I think on, on, on one hand, it's, it's a really positive thing because, um, you know, teaching is a profession. Um, it is uh, evidence-informed and teachers aren't, aren't just, you know, Sort of making up as they go along they are um you know uh doing what they know is is the best thing to be doing with their classes um but at the same time um i think that there's been a lot of discussion around how you actually take that evidence and i think that there is a danger that sometimes um you know you can take a research paper to be um suggesting that there's i don't know more of an exact science behind teaching than perhaps there is. Mm. Um, so it's just kind of taking everything with a pinch of salt and making sure that, that we're, we're balanced. And sure, throwing a lot of money at a research project could be useful, but at the same time, you know, I think it's, it's just making sure that we're not um, thinking we're gonna be able to find a silver bullet to fix some of the problems in education through that. Yes, that's a good point, isn't it? Like saying the research says makes something sound very mm. formal. We talked about this in a previous podcast about how if you say, oh, cognitive scientists say, it just sounds mm. kind of, it gives it a weight of authority, but it doesn't actually mean it's necessarily true or that everyone agrees with it. And I think, <clears throat> again, that's what this feature shows so well is that people will always sort of disagree and they'll always, and not, you know, not unjustifiably, that there'll always be this kind of tension between types of teaching. And Melissa, again, you were talking about, you know, filling in the gaps in the knowledge, reading something like this. And I suspect many teachers will find something in this feature that they didn't know before, even if it's just about the history of teaching. You can see like how education can lead to such big sort of policy decisions and so forth. And people will always be, you know, disagree and have, have you know, different points of view on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a really good point, Dan. And I think that, um, you know, that there's, there's it's, it's often sort of portrayed as being the sort of divide between the progs and the trads as being this really clear cut, you know, you're either one or the other um, and, you, you know, you can't, you can't possibly um, socialise with anyone on the other side of mm. it because it just doesn't work like that. And, and actually it's, it's much more nuanced, I think. And a lot of teachers would, you know, um, pick up methods from different styles of teaching, depending on, you know, what the class in front of them is and, and, and the, the students and, um, you know, even the topic and the subject. And I, I think that, um, so, you just have to be careful as well about, um, you know, creating these kind of really clear cut divides when actually in reality, um, it, it's not quite, quite so black and white. Mm. And there's obviously one other nice thing about this feature, and Melissa, maybe you can talk about this a little bit, is, is John does a nice job, I assume it's John, of putting in the um, musical number ones at certain points yes. in the story, which I thought was a nice touch. <laughs> really nice. 
Was that was that your hand at all? Because I know you used to. No, no, no. It was it was there. Well, unless it was the the sub editor that got there before me. But um, no, that was that was in there when I got to it. No, I think that's great because you learn a huge amount about direct instruction and the history about that and a huge research project. And you also pick up a bit of number one pop trivia during the yeah, story. Yeah, it really places really nice. it in context, which is nice and sort of lightens it up. Mm, absolutely. Well, that is the cover feature by John Morgan. It's a fascinating read. Highly recommended. Uh, highly recommend it. And um, yeah, we shall now move on to the next feature. So the next feature we're going to look at is a feature by Vicky Williams about anger. And Melissa, you sort of picked this one out. What, what particularly sort of drew you, drew you to this one? Oh, this is so fascinating. So, um, yeah, it's this interview we did with uh, Vicky Williams, who is a teacher. She, um, she teaches secondary students with social, emotional and mental health needs. And it's all about helping students manage their anger through what's known as the hand model of the brain, which was developed by someone called Dan Siegel. It's quite a visual thing, so not necessarily ideal for a podcast, but I've watched some YouTube videos about it and it's really simple. Basically, you know, the model is your thumb represents the limbic system, which is the bit of the brain that governs emotions, such as anger. And your fingers represent the cortex, which is the thinking bit of your brain. And the two are distinct, but the thinking part can talk to the feeling part and they can work together. So. The idea is that by teaching students uh, this model and making them aware of this connection between the bits of the brain, they can self-regulate um, their emotions better. And what I find really interesting about this is the idea of distinguishing between the feeling of anger from the behaviour that can result from feeling mm. angry. You know, that sounds so simple, but, you know, when you put it like that, but if you think about it, you know, anger has really negative connotations in our society. You know, when dealing with an angry child, a lot of parents might just react to the child's behavior rather than dealing with what the child is actually feeling. You know, it's treating the symptom rather than treating the cause. And what Vicky Williams is saying is, anger isn't a behavior, it's an emotion. And, mm. and also, you know, this doesn't just apply to children. I think a lot of adults could do with being more in tune with you know, she, she mentions the physical, making children more aware of the physical changes that can place, take place in their body when they begin to feel angry. And I think a lot of adults, you know, aren't aware of that either. Um, and to, a lot of people could benefit from knowing that there's actually this really simple thing they could do to make themselves more aware of their emotions and help calm mm. themselves down. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. It was a really interesting piece in that regard. Like the two issues there of that kind of the emotion of anger and what causes it is actually important to deal with, not just the effects that it causes of, you know, throwing something across the classroom or, or shouting or screaming. It's okay, that's one thing, but you've also got to go back a step and think well, what caused it. And that was really interesting. I mean, again, Helen, you've, you've may, maybe experienced this in the classroom, you know, children being angry or sort of acting out. I mean, again, was, is that must be a very difficult moment for a teacher. It's easy to understand if, if you do sort of lose sight of what's going on, but you know, is it, it's probably very important that teachers can sort of step back sometimes and think, okay, what caused that behavior? Yeah, I mean, you do, you definitely have to kind of distance yourself from it, because obviously when someone is is displaying uh, anger, especially if it's perhaps directed, you know, towards you or, or towards kind of the situation, the automatic response for most people would be to react emotionally back. And, you know, in the classroom, you just, you can't do that because, um, you know, you need to be the adult, you need to be... Um, the one in charge and and sort of demonstrating um, the what the right way to respond in those kind of situations and you know that that is that is challenging but it's something that uh, I think teachers get very um, very used to because you know they're sort of um, dealing with it on a daily basis um, 
yeah, I mean, it was, it's always something that, that I'm, t I'm terrible for having a temper. I definitely lose my temper. And um, I'm the type of person who would throw something like that's what that's, you know, what happens when I lose my temper. Um, so I suppose in that respect, you just have to kind of be able to see it from the, the child's perspective and relate it to how you would feel yourself, you know. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's difficult. But um, I think that having strategies like the one that, um, that Vicky's suggesting is, is probably really useful, like you say, Melissa, not just for dealing with students, but also to help you be more self-aware as um, just as an adult moving through life, not just in the classroom. Yes, I like, I like, that's a good point, isn't it? And it's interesting. One thing that struck me is that, you know, this idea of the, the physical representation of anger. And I think, Melissa, you sort of tried to explain it. This, yeah, it's hard to explain or, you know, just over a voice podcast, but effectively you take your thumb and put it inside a fist. And then the fingers represent the sort of logical thinking part of our brain that is in charge most of the time. And the thumb is the sort of the emotional response. And what happens is when that takes over is it pushes the fingers out of the way and the thumb, you know, the emotion, the anger takes over. And what you've got to do is get your fingers back down over your thumb you know so to speak and I thought that was great and it really took a good visual thing that you could almost teach children to do although I suppose you are also getting them to make a fist at the same time which is potentially <laughs> problematic <laughs> but it would stop you throwing things so it kind of has pros and cons if you had your hand it's in a fist true. but I think it's a really nice thing and I mean you know we all are prone to anger it'd be it'd be a you know a person who claimed they, would, they didn't get angry well they wouldn't be telling the truth and I think like you said adults or children could probably start could you know in that moment could stop and think hang on my thumb you know, my emotions have taken over. I need to get my fingers back around that. Do you think it's like you'll take forward, Melissa? I think so. Yeah. I mean, definitely watching um, Dan Siegel, who, who sort of invented, he credits himself as the inventor of this thing. Um, you know, it seems to be, be applicable to all sorts of people in all sorts of areas of life. And um, he calls it when the fingers come up over the thumb, he calls it flipping the lid. You've got mm. to get the lid back down. And um, yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> We've all, we've all confessed to being angry people. Of course I can get angry, I can lose my temper. And I was just like, yeah, this makes so much sense. I'm absolutely going to think about this. Although, as Vicky Williams points out, it's all very well teaching uh, people about it when they're calm, but actually putting it into practice is a lot harder. Yeah, once the lizard brain takes over, yeah. then, you know. Well, this is it, isn't it? When you're, when you're angry, someone's telling you to calm down is like the, the most enra enraging thing mm -hmm. you can hear. So mm -hmm. it's sort of, say something, right, make a fist. But your thumb is like, <laughs> what? <laughs> You've got to have that anger validated. It's very hard. But I think to me, it came across very much if you can teach, you know, because I don't think I ever was ever taught about, you know, anger or, or any form of emotional regulation, of, certainly at primary school or secondary no. school. And, no, but it I seems like, well, why wouldn't we teach that? If, if it takes a short period of time, at least, it's a good thing to equip someone with, even if it's a small skill, it's a life skill, isn't it? Mm. And this is, um, you know, thinking about what we were saying before about research um, informing you know, pedagogy and, and practice in schools, I think this is the type of thing where it's a really positive thing because um, it is it is taking kind of science and and teaching students about emotional literacy. I mean, that's much mu a much bigger thing in schools nowadays than it was for us. And, you know, that's hopefully going to be beneficial. Mm. Yeah, well, that is the feature on Anger by Vicky Williams. A fascinating read. And as I think you can hear, we all took a lot from it. I think everyone who reads it will as well. So the last feature we're going to talk about this week is by Gemma Corby. And uh, Helen, do you want to talk us through this one? Yeah, I, I picked this one out to talk about because it's um, something a little bit different. Um, it's talking about um, 
essentially how teachers are viewed by people outside of the profession um, and the fact that because you're a teacher and the fact that you uh, you know stand in front of people doing public speaking essentially all day every day people assume that you're going to be really comfortable doing that um, in any context whether that's kind of giving a, a speech at a wedding or um, you know even within school standing up in, in an assembly for example and, and delivering that um, and what Gemma is saying is um, you know once you take a teacher out of the comfort zone of their classroom they uh, aren't necessarily going to be as completely at ease as people assume they would be um, and that can lead to all kinds of crazy things going on with you know your voice the way you walk the way you move um, and the fact that you need to find ways to control those sort of symptoms of of, of anxiety or stage fright and um, and that it's just it's an issue that, that all teachers um, most likely will face these kind of misconceptions around uh, you know what teaching is and what it means um, and she talks about the fact that uh, you know if you're for example trying to walk up to a podium um, in front of a, a whole room full of people your legs might feel like jelly you might suddenly develop a really weird walk because people are watching you walk um, and it's just it's a really light-hearted fun um, look at it Yes, I really liked that, that bit you mentioned there, particularly and the idea of like when you're walking, you suddenly become very self-conscious of the fact everyone's watching mm. you walk. So then you think, oh, am I walking correctly? And that almost then makes you think too much and you start walking in a weird way. Um, mm. I don't know, have either of you two ever given a speech at a major event or a wedding or anything where you sort of had that sensation of, oh God, everyone's watching every move I make? Totally, yeah. I mean, I love this piece. I love the way Gemma writes anyway, but um, it's so relatable. This is not a teacher-specific thing. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, I mean, like you say, Helen, you know, teachers have their domain, they're in their classroom, and then somehow all the skills that you can apply in your domain suddenly sort of fall away uh, when you're sort of out of your comfort zone. And I think that's the case with, with everyone. I mean, I, I haven't done any public speaking for a while, but um, I, I have done it mainly in a sort of training capacity. And uh, yeah, you absolutely have that thing. Um, and you start to kind of doubt yourself. And mm. with me, um, you know, this this focuses on, on walking, but with me, I speak really quickly anyway. And mm. I have to really try and control how quickly I'm speaking when I'm doing mm -hmm. that kind of thing. That's, that's, that's my thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Also really interesting, um, so it, sorry if this is a bit of a spoiler and I'm jumping the gun here, but Gemma Corby says at the end that actually a, a good way of countering this is to sort of distract yourself um, and, and kind of sing a song in your head. And it's quite interesting that there's this theme with the anger piece of, you know, sort of distracting your brain and kind of taking control over this physical thing that's happening in your body. I thought that was uh, interesting that had kind of emerged between these pieces. Mm, yes, that is a good connection. And what about you, Helen? I mean, you, again, keep, keep echoing it, but you, you, were, you were a teacher. But again, different to give a lesson to give an assembly, I'd have thought, much, much different environment. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, um, in a in a classroom, obviously, it's a, it's a small group. You're the only adult in the room, uh, unless it's a teaching assistant, and it's it's generally um, students you know, unless you're teaching a cover lesson. Whereas an assembly is a much more different prospect. I mean, I think for me, um, what the difference would have would, would be is that it's other adults in the room that you're talking to. I think that's what would make me self conscious. Mm um because you know um you're kind of being judged by them in a way that you perhaps wouldn't be by the by you know students um and i think that that's where kind of the anxiety would come from for me personally yeah. um 
yeah, I definitely would have always found it harder to get up in front of a group of adults than to get up in front of a class once I was used to, to speaking in front of a class. Of course, the first time you speak in front of a class, that was probably the most terrifying moment of my life. You know, your own, your first class for the own time, your, uh, for the first time. That's um, something pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can imagine that. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because I, in, my, in a former job, I used to occasionally host award dues of about 200 people, which, was, which yeah, was pretty nerve-wracking. But once I got over it, did it the first couple of times, I sort of got into something quite enjoyed, actually, get a good post speaking buzz but what this piece really reminded me of was a very sort of funny thing where I went on a course before I did my first ever one with a sort of trainer who'd done hundreds of events and he was giving tips on how to host an award you know how to balance the crowd and all these sort of different tips and lots of very practical things that was really useful one thing he he said is when you get to the venue practice walking up and down the stairs to the vet onto the stage a few times so you know like the gap between the stairs because you know that thing when sometimes you get one stair that's Mm. slightly higher and so you you can trip on it as you go up and he said, you obviously, you know, you don't want to do that when you go up because if you walk onto the stage to start the event and you trip over, you're always going to be the guy who tripped over for the rest of the night, you know, and you'll be able to laugh at you. So I got to the venue and did all that and walked up and down the steps, which felt ridiculous, like practicing walking up and down steps. But obviously it doesn't matter how much you practice, the moment that you come to go and here's your host, you know, you've got to walk on stage. Oh my God, the terror. I've never been more scared walking up four steps mm. in my life. And I probably walked up like a robot, you know, at one than the other, than the other, just to make sure I didn't fall over because I had this vision of if you fall over, you've lost them in my head. <laughs> exactly <laughs> what Gemma's talking about. Exactly. Crazy yeah. walk. That just complete self-consciousness of, oh my God, I've got to move really correctly right now. But thankfully mm. I didn't fall over. Um, but all the power did go out midway through the ceremony. So that was a different drama <laughs> I had to contend with. Thankfully that wasn't on me. So <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, again, another great piece. And um, thank you, Helen, for talking through that one. Now, a final bit before we go, I thought because this issue comes out on the 30th of October and the day after is, of course, Halloween, it might be fun to have a little terrifying trip down memory lane about some of the scariest memories from school. Um, Melissa, school, terror, any sort of good examples (laughs) like that? I don't know about terror, but I can definitely think of sort of horrible creeping dread that Mm. seems in line with, with Halloween. Um, so when I started year seven, uh, my mum bought me a pager uh, as it was the mid nineties and uh, mobile phones weren't really kind of a thick, well, they, they were around, but certainly not something you'd buy for your year seven child. Um, so she got me a pager so I could, you know, you know, we could communicate and um, I loved my pager and I was so proud of it, but I was also a very conscientious, goody goody student and I always had it on silent and I was very, you know, I didn't sort of check it in lessons or anything like that. Um, and I was in uh, a physics lesson with Mr. Walton in year seven and I could hear this sound and everyone was kind of looking around, which, you know, now kids, like everyone has phones and I'm sure this happens all the time, but at the time it was completely unheard of, um, literally unheard of. Um, and this sound was going, and I was like, that sounds like my pager, but it couldn't possibly be because I would never. And yeah, um, my, my mum was paging me. And it was going off. And I just remember that, you know, when everyone just slowly turns to look for the source of the noise <laughs> and it's you and you realise it's you and your teacher is just incensed because this isn't a thing that happens. Um, and I just remember that feeling still today. Uh, and also pages, you know, 
the, about the time they came I was going to say, then what, you, go, you went home and watched Noel's house party and... Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Probably. 90s nostalgia. What was your mum paging you for? I, I think that's your mum's fault. Yeah, Take your pages on silent. Yeah. Uh, I think she was just saying, you know, call me when you get to your mate's house after school or whatever. Um, I don't that remember does sound the, content, terrifying, <laughs> the content of the page. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, who would in that, in that moment? You, you did a very good job there of describing the, the, the growing dread, this sort of mm. slow burn of, oh, it's me, and wanting the, wanting the ground to swallow you up. So, yeah, that does mm-hmm. sound pretty scary. What about you, Helen? Any terrifying memories? Yeah, I was I was trying to think, and I was I was really struggling. I think um, if anything really sort of terrifying had happened, I I probably just just blocked it out completely. So, um, but but um, I remember I do remember this one. Um, it's a good Halloween story, I suppose. Uh, in in year six, we had a a trainee teacher come and teach us for a little while, um, and she was put in charge of doing uh, our um, school our assembly. So each class would 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 take it in turns to sort of lead the assembly once a week. Um, and for ours, she decided that we were all going to get up in zombie makeup and do the Thriller dance, um, Michael Jackson's Thriller dance, the music video. Um, and so we spent ages learning this dance in our classroom, all these little year sixes. Um, and then when the day came, we all had to dress in black and, and have white makeup and, you know, and stuff on our faces. Mm. Um, and underneath the stage in the hall there was a kind of like a hidden area and a trap door where you could come up through the stage um and there were going to be four students picked to go under the trap door and then come up in the middle of the performance and join in the dancing um and I was desperate to do it obviously because that sounded amazing um and I got picked because I was probably you know the least likely to mess around down there um, so it was me and, and three other students and um, we finally, you know, the day came, we finally got to go down there um, and it was absolutely terrifying down there. It was pitch black. There was just all this old weird sports equipment and kind of bits of stuff from old plays. Um, and, and actually it wasn't, it was not fun at all. Um, yeah, but that was, that's my sort of best Halloween story at school. But that's, nice. that's, that does sound really scary. And you were saying before, like, oh, I can't think of anything too scary, but that sounds genuinely upsetting, you know, putting four children yeah. in, a black... <laughs> in a black hole together. Yeah. <laughs> and there was just this little crack that we could peer through and see the audience yeah. on the other side. And then, you know, we had to manage to get the, the trap door open. And yeah, it was, um, it was quite an adventure. And you were all dressed up in scary makeup and, and things Probably as well. So, oh, that's gee. right, yeah. Stuff I wonder if they ever did that again, yeah. <laughs> Probably not. I wonder, you know, I wonder how that went down with her, um, uh, you know, her tutor. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, mine mine isn't quite as scary as that, but the thing I thought of was there was a time our school bus, this was in Cornwall, and our school bus used to, you know, obviously pick us up and take us home. And there was one bit of the journey where we went on an A road. There's not many A roads in Cornwall at the best of times, but there was one bit. It wasn't very long, but it was downhill and it was the fastest the bus would go. And obviously every driver would be zooming past and one day the driver was going down the hill and he got towards the end of where the two lanes merge into one. And then he just came to a stop in the middle of the road. And again, bear in mind, this is a fast road. Everyone's doing 50, 60 miles an hour. And obviously at the time I was the sort of nominal bus prefect. It's probably my lower sixth, I think. So I was sort of in charge, you know. And everyone was saying, well, what's he doing? Well, why have we stopped? It's in the middle of this A road. And then the driver started reversing back up the A road into the oncoming traffic. And obviously I was sort of thinking, what the hell is going on? So I, you know, it sort of, man of action i went downstairs to the bus driver and said oh it's terribly sorry excuse me you appear to be reversing the wrong way or reversing up an a road and he went oh yeah one of the panels has fallen off the bus 
and it had, you know, one of the side panels had fallen off into the main road. But and I said to him, I don't think that's warrants reversing up the main road. But he carried on. So obviously my attempts at you know taking charge of the situation were complete failure. And um, I was only seventeen, I guess. And he he reversed up about hundred meters or so, stopped, put the stopped the bus, got out, went and got this panel, logged it, logged it on the bus, and we set off again. But you think of all the things that could have gone wrong in that moment, he really wasn't worth reclaiming the panel, but he did. And with hindsight, it was pretty scary that he did that. Was there not a teacher? Were you, were you just, were you literally in charge? Well, I wasn't in charge in any official capacity, but yeah, we didn't have okay. teachers travel on the bus with us. It was just, we were picked up at the bottom of the hill and they drove us back. You know, on the oh, road. it wasn't a trip. It was like a just regular Just the daily day. school bus. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that strikes me as one of those things as well that, you know, is, is scary enough when you're 17, but as you reflect on it, as you grow older, and you know become a driver yourself and that kind of thing it is now really think anything could have happened <laughs> yeah I mean, exactly absolutely terrifying you think a driver could be coming down thinking i'm sure that bus is coming towards me backwards but no it can't <laughs> be and then suddenly it was but thankfully there was no harm done and um, nothing else untoward happened on the bus at any other point so that was all good so yeah some pretty scary memories there a good mix of things and i'm sure listeners will have their own terrifying but hopefully not too terrifying memories of school as well Excellent. Well, thank you both for taking part in the podcast. I think you were both excellent. And I think Jordan and Gorn, you have a fight on our hands to get back on for next week. Thank you for having us. We're much better. Thanks so much. (laughs) Good stuff. Excellent. Well, I hope everyone's enjoyed listening. And yeah, that was the 30th of October issue of Tez. It will be out on Friday and um, pick up a copy as soon as possible. Bye.